1: If Boris Johnson had not gone to Eton and not gone to Oxford and not been born into the privilege yet, he, he wouldn't have got a job running a bus depot, let alone the United Kingdom.
0: My guest on the Humorology podcast this week is back for his second round of insights into the world of politics, communication and hopefully humour as well. He served as Tony Blair's spokesman, press secretary and director of communications and strategy during Blair's tenure as Prime Minister of the UK from 1997 to 2003. In addition to his legendary career in politics, he's known for his frequent, passionate and poignant commentary on politics and current affairs. More recently, you can enjoy his unmatched insights through his books, Living Better, Winners, and the recently released to huge acclaim, But What Can I Do? His phenomenally popular podcast with Rod Rory Stewart I nearly said Rod Stewart the rest is politics provides listeners with a light hearted learned look at the current political landscape since he last joined us his beloved Burnley FC has earned promotion back to the Premier League so he should be in a very good mood please remember to like subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts Alistair Campbell, welcome back to the Humorology podcast. Thank you very much, Paul.
1: Has it changed your mood dramatically? Uh, the football has a bit. I really had a great day at Middlesbrough when we got promoted. Um, but I, I, don't, I don't allow, I don't think sport affects me in the moment. I'm not one of those people who the next day is feeling... Either up or down about it. I'm always looking forward to the next thing, um, but yeah, summer mood is reasonably good at the moment. We're talking on the morning that the local election results are coming in, coming in. It looks like a absolute banjaxing of the Tories, which is good given that they banjax the country. Uh, so yeah, that's that's uh, good for my spirits. Um, I'm, I'm actually. After talking to you, I've got to do another podcast and then I'm off to sign a thousand books. I'm slightly dreading that. I know I shouldn't. I know it's a nice thing to do because they say that a signed book is a soul book. Um, But the yeah, a thousand in one go. By the end of it, my signature will be a very, very, very thin line. Oh, yes. You're going to
0: have repetitive strain, aren't you? Uh, No. Well, we've talked previously about your passion for politics and as we've just been talking about football. But what we want to do today on on the Humorology podcast is delve deeper into your new book. But what can I do, which is aimed at getting a new generation to go into politics and make positive change? Uh, Firstly, I read the book in one day and I have to say, I absolutely loved it. Oh, thank you. No, it really is good. Uh, the book is, for our listeners, half explanation of what's gone wrong in recent times, the uh, uh, polarisation, popularization, fatigue, disengagement. And then in the second half, it, it kind of feels not self-help, but it's a primer, I think, about those areas using your experience in campaigning and strategy and comms, etc., Well, then it finishes with some super practical advice about how to get involved in politics, whether you want to be a grassroots campaigner in your community or if you someday want to be prime minister. Why did you feel that it was important to provide this information and perspective at this moment in time?
1: Well, Paul, first of all, can I say that I think you've you've sold the book better than I could. I mean, that was absolutely brilliant. You know, analysis, self-help, and then how do you actually do it? That is kind of how I've structured it. I wanted to, first of all, explain why I think things have gone wrong. Secondly, understand why people or accept why people are so reluctant to go into politics, but explain how you can look after yourself, mental health, fitness, all that sort of stuff. And then thirdly, as you say, practically, how can you get involved? and why did I write it now? I mean, the title of the book, or What Can I Do, actually comes from the fact that I I kept, I was conscious of how many people kept saying that to me. Like they say, you know, I listen to your podcast, I read your stuff in the New European, I see you ranting on Instagram as you're marching around Hampstead Heath. And I agree with you, but what can I do? And it's that sort of sense of impotence and desperation. And I'm trying to say to people, you can't all be prime minister. You can't all be Greta Thunberg, you can't all, you know, be an MP, you can't all even run a campaign, but we can all do something. And amongst the people who can do something, there will be people who can be Prime Minister and there will be people who can be Greta Thunberg. And it's a question of just sort of saying to people, giving them a a sense of confidence and agency, Um, because the truth is we can all do stuff. And I think that three of the in the middle bit that you've correctly analyzed is the bit that I'm trying to sort of shake make the link between how bad things are to how they can change. I, I try to debunk these things that you hear people saying all the time. Nothing ever changes. Well, that is the most ridiculous thing that is ever said. We live, I mean, even now, you turn on the radio every day you're hearing about Chat GPT, how's it changing the world? And we don't know. The world's changing around us the whole time, really fast. The second thing is there's no point in voting because they're all the same. Utterly ridiculous. Utterly imagine how different the world would have been if Hillary Clinton was president, not Donald Trump. You know, it would be a different place. It wouldn't be, you know, we'd still have we'd live in the same houses, we'd live in the same towns and cities and villages, but the world would be a different place. And then the third thing is people say no one person can ever make a difference. Now, it's true we can achieve more together than we do alone, right? But people can make a difference on their own. And as they make a difference on their own, then you build networks and you build out with teams and you can change the world. Uh,
0: Well, I agree. But then I turned on the radio this morning and uh, like you, I was listening to the thing. And the first person who came on, was a, a bloke who goes, well, oh, it's terrible. I mean, they're all the same. And uh, the interviewer said, and and uh, who did you vote, if it's okay to ask? And he goes, I have never voted and I'm not gonna vote because they're all the same. And that kind of apathy is what I think
1: the book's trying to <laughs> yeah. be an antidote and look, to. That guy, that guy, whoever that guy was, will probably not read my book will probably think that I'm a sort of, you know, I don't know what you'd think. But most people are concerned. Most people do care about the world around them. And I actually think that one of the, you mentioned the podcast I do with Roy Stewart. I think one of the reasons that so many people seem to be listening to that is because actually, I think people are more interested in politics than ever, but they don't like what they see in our politics. And they particularly don't like the government. I think a lot of it is about the media. I think people are sick to death of the media coverage. Of poly- the fact that, I don't know what station you were listening to, but the fact that we give so much space on the airwaves to people who say, there's no point voting, they're all the same, nothing ever changes, it's all shit. You know, it, you've got to, what the media should be doing is giving a platform for genuine debate. I'm not saying that that guy doesn't have a point, but it's a point rooted in. In a, in a deliberate, willful sense of ignorance, to actually say that it makes no difference who's in power is such a ridiculous thing to say.
0: Well, I, I agree. And, and you know, as you say, maybe that is why the, the rest is politics has seemingly come from nowhere to take it. On, on the rest is politics, you and Rory disagree agreeably, as you say. Obviously to do that, uh, you have to have respect, but is, as this is the humorology podcast, is humour also at the core of being able to do that successfully?
1: Yeah, I think it is. And, and funny enough, when we do the, I mean, it was a bit of a kind of weird experiment in a way, because, you know, we didn't know each other that well. We didn't know whether we'd really get on. Uh, I think it helps that we are very different and it helps that we're not physically together a lot of the time so we can really focus on the hour or two hours that we're actually there kind of doing it, often on screen like this. Um, But when we've done the live shows, I remember the first live show we did was up in Blackpool at the Winter Gardens. And it, it might not have been the first one, but it was the first like kind of, you know, really big event. And it was funny, one of the producers, Jack, at time, he said, God, this is turning into something completely different to the podcast. So what do you mean? He says, well, it's just really, you're both just playing it for laughs. So we weren't doing it deliberately, but with a, well, we might have been subconsciously, but with a live audience there, you do want them to be entertained. And part of that is telling them funny stories that nonetheless, what we try to do is we tell funny stories, but we try and make serious points. So for example, I always do, I take the piss out of Rory over going to Eton, right? Yeah, and that's that's a bit of sort of friendly banter, as it were. But it will usually lead us to having a serious discussion about about class or about education or about barriers and that are put up in front of the majority. But what was the, but Jack's point was really valid: is that the the humour that that uh, evolved between us. Became fundamental to the live shows. And then you take more of that into the into the podcast itself. And to the point of Rory Stewart, Chadley, Max Miller at the Palladium, that it was utterly spontaneous. Like we did not plan it, but my God, people were rolling in the aisles at that one. Oh,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's one lady. Yeah. No. Is he doing all that?
1: <laughs> well, he he taught, he did he did some dancing. And he also told a really, really quite risque story that I'm not going to repeat.
0: A palomine, a, pal of mine, a pal of mine, a master builder, a master builder, see? So he said to his little boy, round about Christmas time, because he's got Christmas coming there, you see. And he said to his little boy, he said, what would you like for Christmas? So the boy said, I like a baby brother.
1: The master builder said, we, we couldn't finish the job in time. <laughs> he said, you can have a gun or a horse. He said, no, I don't want a gun, I don't want a horse, I want a baby brother.
0: Fellow said, I told you we can't finish the job in time. He said, Well, you can put some more men on the job now. Nah, <laughs> okay. Well, I I know some of the Max Miller stories, and uh he he got banned from the BBC for doing them, didn't
1: he? That's right. Well no, well, Rory's got a slight obsession with Max Miller, which I haven't got to the bottom of. And we got to we got to the palladium and I made the point. I, I made the mistake of pointing out to him that on the wall on the way in there was this picture of Max Miller. He spent most of the day then googling and, and looking at old clips of Max Miller and ended up impersonating him on stage quite well
0: happened. that's funny in the in the book uh you you talked about the 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 joshing, if you like of you and Rory and him going to Eton and 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 you jossing with him but you make an important point in the book that we've had is it 20 prime ministers who 21, 21 who went to Eton and and you know I think it's under learn Seven from the Labour Party. Oh, well, that's interesting as well. Uh, But it's still one school. I mean, I went to a a comprehensive school with over 2000 boys. Nobody got a look in as prime minister, just so we're clear. Um, But you you talk about um, that fact that we're not educating uh, people at a young age, which is one of my passions, actually, Um, that. Whole, um private school uh, radiate inner confidence, encouraged to speak mm. out loud. Uh, whereas at, at state schools, you're not encouraged to do that. How can we even that balance if even at school level it's there?
1: Well, it was in last week. I the very first event I did with the book was a, a charity, an educational charity called Voice Twenty One, and they promote something called oracy, which is the the art of listening and communicating and speaking and they're trying to make it on a par with literacy and numeracy and the point they were making so the guy who was doing the main presentation was a guy called professor neil mercer from cambridge and he's like the kind of godfather of oracy speaking uh, the frame the skills framework and so this was an audience of i don't know several hundred teachers and he said put your hand up if you were taught the art of speaking when you're at school, even, you know, once or twice. And about, I don't know, a couple of dozen hands went up. He then said, put your hand down if you went to a private school. And almost all of the hands, about two hands were left. And I write in the book about, I believe that confidence and self-confidence can be taught and can be developed. Now, some people have it more naturally, of course, but it can be taught We can learn from other examples of it. I I make the point in my column in The New European this week that if Boris Johnson had not gone to Eton and not gone to Oxford and not been born into the privilege he had, he wouldn't have got a job running a bus depot, let alone the United Kingdom. But he's got that confidence. David Cameron, I remember I write in the book about – I write a lot in the book about Brexit, as you can imagine, and how that came through populism and polarisation and post truth. But David Cameron was warned by Osborne. He was warned by Angela Merkel. He was warned by François Hollande, the French president at the time, that, you know, don't go for a referendum on something as contentious as this because it will become about something else. And Hollande had this wonderful phrase. He said that um, uh, he said, but the trouble was Cameron was wearing le masque arrogant, the serenity the arrogant mask of serenity and the arrogant mask of serenity is a wonderful description of that sort of self belief that they have that those people who have been to those top private schools they have this it's an it's a it's a, it's a self confidence that does tip into arrogance because they believe that they're right now i'm not saying we should teach our kids to be arrogant but we should teach them to, uh, to believe that their voice matters as much as anybody else. No, I,
0: I completely agree. And with my background in psychology, I, I love the fact that in the book you are saying exactly what I would say, which is confidence can be learned because I've taught it to people. But you're also very, very clear that um, I always say to audiences when I speak, I say there are two types of people in the world. There are those who get nervous and there are liars. And you are very honest about that you've had issues with nerves on live television and, and you've just learned some coping strategies.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, funny enough. I often don't get nervous before maybe because I've done so much of it now, but quite often I have to make myself nervous because otherwise I I don't, I I underperform. And this thing about, so you and I talking now, And we're having a conversation, and actually, we're both quite close to how we would talk in normal circumstances. And when I speak in public on a stage, I try to speak in much the same way, but there has to be a deeper energy to it. There has to be a deeper sense of connection with the audience. And and a lot of that is technique. I mean, you know, I I say in the book that the master for me at this was was Bill Clinton, who could have this ability – through zoning in on certain people in the audience, he had a technique and he mastered a technique that meant that everybody in the audience felt he was doing the same thing to them. He was talking to them. Macron does something quite similar. Tony's pretty good at it as well. So, but for but those times, I, I talk in the book, you're right. I'm th- and listen, thanks for reading the book so closely, because as you know, a lot of interviewers don't. No, I loved it. Is that I have these techniques that I've had to develop because and it's a bit like my daughter. I mean, you know, my daughter's a stand-up comedian. Race, yeah. And she gets really bad anxiety, which you'd think was a crazy thing to want to be when you get anxiety. But she's learned techniques which help her. And I, and one of them she uses is one that I developed like when I was I say in the book that I was having these, it wasn't it was worse than a panic attack. It was like an, I was having these like I wasn't there. I was there my, my I was sitting here, but I was over there somewhere and I couldn't I was like having out of body experiences and heaven knows why to do with stress, to do with depression, to do with, I don't know what. And I was so worried about it that I, coincidentally oh, a friend of mine who at one point was a professional golfer, I told him and he said, listen, I've got this guy as a psychologist, because you know, golfers get the hips yes. when they can't putt. They can't, they literally can And it's a sort of psychological thing. And, he said he's working with this sports psychologist, a guy called Andy McCann. He said, maybe he can help. And so I saw him a few times and we de- together we developed this thing where he said, you need when when you feel that sense of alarm rising, you need something that just centers you. It's your thing. You center yourself. He said, for example, the all blacks, when they're losing concentration, they do this thing where they just flick, it looks like they're flicking sweat away from their eye, but they just flick their eyebrow and look up to the look up. And then they bring them, that's their technique. And we developed this thing where, because for me, if you're doing a live interview on television or you're speaking and you start to get these feelings, you can't do anything overly physical. So we developed this thing where I just rub, I put my thumb and my forefinger together like that and I just rub them very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. And it, I don't know why, but it always works. And the reason it works is because it makes me smile. I think this is silly. Like, you know, this is si- how is this changing my mood? And I find it funny. So then I smile and that means you relax. And then you're back in the center. Well, well,
0: it's really interesting because uh, with my background in psychology, I I, I know exactly what uh, Andy McCann is doing with you. He's anchoring your state. And that is what professional yeah. footballers do. Um, but if you remember Johnny Wilkinson, what did he always do before yeah. he kicked? he anchored his state. Now what happens is what that does is it bypasses the conscious mind, i.e. I should be relaxed. I must relax. And what it does is it immediately takes you into state so you don't have to think about it. And and it's just a fast way to anchor yourself into all those things. So I was fascinated when I was reading it, but that I think is really, really useful anyone because so many people I think in the book you say it's like like up to 70 percent of people are just terrified of standing up in public
1: and speaking and that
0: must be one of the biggest barriers to entry
1: and also you see you see in look you know in the comedy world I mean I, I I I watch Grace a lot and I go and see her comedy shows and I often see other comedians there and I can, because I know Grace so well, I can always tell when her mind is not quite, you know, where she wants it to be. And sometimes that helps her performance, sometimes it hinders it. I see, I've seen other comedians and I watch them and I think, I don't know why you do this. One, because you're not being very funny. And secondly, you look absolutely wretched. And then when you go and maybe chat to them afterwards, you find that actually they were in a really, really poor mental state and they weren't able to. To perform. But you know, it's amazing how many, you know, what is stage fright in the end? I mean, I I've got a friend who's a who's an actor who tells me he needs stage fright. He can't perform without stage fright. He needs to be scared that it's going to go badly, otherwise, he doesn't perform. And so he he almost forces himself to be scared. And now I I don't I don't like those feelings, but when they happen, which they do. I've just found ways of dealing well, with it. Well, that, that's coping
0: strategies. And it's interesting you say that your friend, obviously we both know a lot of performers and everything. I I think the first chapter in my first book, and we're here to talk about your book, not my book, but is uh, called The Pitching Bible. And the first chapter is called It's All About Them. What happens generally is people get internal and start thinking, oh, God, what, what did I stutter then? Or um, what am I doing? Or I don't know my next line. And they become internal. And the easiest way to get out of that is to be external and put all your um, your attention outward. Look at somebody in the audience, connect with somebody. You just said smile. If you smile at somebody in the audience, they smile back. and. I was talking to Mark Bedford um, of Madness, who's a mate of mine, you know, Madness band. And he was saying every yeah. musician always gets that. Like, what's the next chord? I don't do it. And he said, the thing to do is if the more you think about it, the less you're going to be able to uh, get it. So you yeah. have to go out yeah. of yourself and just connect with the interviewer or with uh, with the audience.
1: Yeah. I do think this thing about... Um how, how to teach this. So, for example, you know, listen, I don't want to, I don't think we should load too much more onto teachers because I think they're absolutely under the cosh. And they've got Ofsted breathing down their neck and the, the short resources and the curriculum's full already. But I do think there is merit in teaching children how to cope with situations like that because it's the same in an interview, like a job interview. I was in LBC yesterday. I was doing James O'Brien's podcast, and in the in the reception, there was a woman there, and I could tell straight away she was there for a job interview. I just, I, and I, I actually said to her, "Are you here for a for an interview?" And she said, "Yeah." And I said, "What for a radio interview?" And she said, "No." And I knew straight away because she she was emanating a sense of yeah nervousness non- but not calm nervousness you know it was like sorry I gave her my little I gave him my little <laughs> I gave him my little tip um so I think that it's you can it's so important to learn this stuff and to and to learn I also talk about in the book about you know I have these techniques when I'm say doing a an event or a speech or you know where I, I compose myself before I go on. I literally do take deep breaths, and I then say I have this conversation inside my head, and I say they are here because they want to hear you. They want to hear you because you're very good at doing this. You've done it so many times before, and then I've got this light switch inside my head, and I just go on, and this, and 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 in my head I imagine this switch. It goes from off. To on and I just feel this energy and I walk on and a lot of people you see people when they walk on stage often they look uncomfortable because it's an abnormal thing to do it's not normal to walk out in front of hundreds of people and suddenly start talking to them right but you've got to make it feel look normal and to make it look normal you have to feel normal
0: And also the next stage of that is if you want anyone to go into any state, you have to go into that state first. So you've been to hundreds of comedy clubs with Grace and you'll notice that the more nervous the person is on stage, the more nervous the whole audience gets.
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. your, Your sense of connection, I think at a certain level, I think, for example, if a Nelson Mandela walks on the stage, People want them to be different. They don't want to be on the same level. They they want them on a pedestal, as it were. Whereas I think if you know, I feel that when I when I go, I want I want direct connection. I want them to feel that they're part of whatever it is that I'm doing. Um, and I and I think that's. I was watching. Funny enough, Fiona and I were watching last night the 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 series. The series that was made. I don't know when it was made, but it's a it's a four part series. Uh, On Ed Sheeran. Oh, I must watch it. And uh, it was really interesting. There was lots of stuff happened in his life at the time. His best friend died, his wife got cancer. He was going from these sort of, you know, pretty good levels of fame to a kind of mega stardom that was out of reach of most people and out of most people's comprehension. And what was really interesting watching it was just sort of seeing a sense of, of, of his normality surrounded by abnormality. And that that I think is is what makes him an incredibly effective connecting performer on stage. He's actually a very normal person doing a very abnormal thing. But he makes people feel connected to that through his normality.
0: Well, and I think, you know, you talk in the in the book about finding mentors. Um, and I I think that whole thing about modeling people as well. In in psychological terms, we talk about modeling. So if I want to know how to um, be a, a, a great communicator, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to one of the, the great communicators who understands that. On some level, I'm going, okay, what would Alistair do? And I think a little trick that we could give to people and and you could give to young people is, you know, you help them with their oracy and all that is imagine yourself being Nelson Mandela, you know, Bill Clinton, yeah. how would they walk into a room? And it's a much yeah. easier way Absolutely. to do it than thinking I must be, you know, a strident, I must be clear. No, pretend it's like acting, you know, and you yeah. fake it till you make it essentially. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
1: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Well, you know what? When when talking about education, and I'm going to do I'm going into a lot of schools with the book as well, and... um. I did that Jamie's Dream School a few years ago where Jamie Oliver pretended to set up a school and I was teaching politics and we had lots of other kind of well-known people teaching different subjects. And the pupils were these kids who'd been through school and come out without a single exam between them. Really tough kids. And what was really interesting, I went in and I sort of sussed them out a bit and then I sat down with the people making the programme and the educationists who were involved. And I said, look, you know what I'd like to do I'd like to put together a whole package of film clips of great speeches, okay? And we did Mandela, Martin Luther King, Obama, Clinton, you know, some amazing speakers. And this, this, so we did the lesson, and it started off, they were pretty rowdy, they were pretty, you know, and then bit by bit, they just became sort of mesmerized by the power of this oratory. And then we got them doing speeches. You know, and at the start they found it weird and difficult, and it was just a bit unreal. But two or three of them were really good speakers, and do you know what? One of them ended up. She was headhunted by EastEnders, yeah. and she she she's now a you know pretty successful. Well,
0: uh, that's really interesting, but you could make the difference, you know, uh, to go back to your book, you could make a difference just by small differences in schools. I I always said, because I used to work a lot in America, and Americans seem to have much more of that confidence. And I came up with the idea that I think that's because from a very young age, they all do show and tell. And they yeah. are used to going and and going this is my glasses case you know and i use it for all the kinds of things like this it doesn't matter what you're doing if you're little and you're used to doing it i think it's a huge thing and all the government cuts on the art subjects and drama oh, and cool. sport that's that's what ruins it for everybody is because when they get to a job interview or they get to potentially becoming, you know, a a member of candidate, they haven't learnt all the basics.
1: Yeah. And and, and the the other thing is, I'd say is that the basics are so fundamental to the rest of what they do in school as well. Um, And, you know, I I think that the – I really, really hope that Labour – if they get into power, do Do put this oracy thing on a par with literacy and numeracy. I also think, by the way, your world comedy. It's interesting. I was at, um, a thing recently where they were talking about the use of comedy in the in the in the treatment of PTSD for mi- the military, and using these comedy courses because what they're what they're doing with that is basically it's just a different form of trying to communicate something that's very very difficult. And these guys sit around and end up trying to find humour in the most terrible things that have happened. And then they have to stand up and perform. Which is brilliant psychologically, if you think about it, because what you have to do
0: in order to find something funny is you have to get a different perspective on it. And that's really part of the the psychological process, is if you can laugh at a problem, it somehow diminishes its power over you
1: well it's why it's why if you if you remember in the uh, at the very end of the book and i give 10 reasons why you the reader should think about getting more involved and one of them is about getting involved in politics and i say sometimes it can be great fun and we had we had a dinner recently tony blair had a dinner recently for um it was a kind of you know looking it was all the team that were there from the very beginning some of them you'd know, people you would know who went on to be, you know, well-known MPs in their own right. Other, others were just, you know, people you'd never have heard of who were just part of the backroom team and so forth. And But what was amazing was that very good relationships still, pretty much everybody, but both in the evening and in the stories that were told, so many of them were about the, the laughs that we had, you know, I told this very funny story, that I say it myself, um, about we were, we were all sort of, you know, people just giving different kind of anecdotes and remembering this, that and the other. And I told this story fresh in my mind because we have just been in Belfast for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, of a time when things were really, really difficult between the unionists and the nationalists. The thing was stuck. We were at Hillsborough Castle. It was about... Six thirty in the morning. I'm just getting myself together. I'm making a few phone calls before going down for breakfast, and I get a knock on the door. and It's one of the special branch guys. He says the boss wants to see you. So I go across to the uh, Tony's bedroom, which is the Queen's bedroom at Hillsborough Castle, and I, 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 I turn towards the, the bedroom, and there's nobody there. And then I hear he's in the bathroom, and he shouts, "I'm in here." And I walk in, and he's lying bollock naked in the bath, and which he, nobody needs to see it. <laughs> nobody needs to see that. There's no suds, he, there's no sort of bath suds. There's no, it's like, and I said, Yeah, what do you want? I'm busy. He said, he said, and he, Tony always did this thing. I don't know why, but he always, when he was either a bit tense or being a bit daft with me, he would put on this kind of fake northern accent, right? And he says, Hey, O'Pally, I've worked out how to move this here peace process in the right direction. He says, What I'm going to do, I'm going to join the Ulster Volunteer Force as a volunteer. And I'm going to get my lovely wife, Cherie, to put on an orange trouser suit and lead them out of the Orange Order. That'll keep them happy. And then, and then he's. He slid down into the bath with the water over his. And now, of course, an hour later, he's suited and booted in front of the cameras, looking prime ministerial and statesmanlike. But that was the kind of craziness that just every now and again got you through some really difficult moments. We had a laugh. Well, and and you know, I think you probably will
0: kill me for telling that story. <laughs> in know, it's all right. There's only millions listening. Um,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, no, but the whole thing about, I, I think you used a very important word there. And, and the book, I think, has that element as well. It is fun to connect with people. And there was a very interesting American survey that, that said 70, percent of people will change supplier or do something new based on one criteria if the new sub, uh, supplier is more fun Fun is actually one of those things which I think is underused. And if you uh, put um, Oracy into that bracket and go, hey, this is uh, we're going to put it on the curriculum. But you know what? It's going to be fun. And you're going to be able to imagine being in going for a job interview and making the person laugh. If you if you do that, guess what? You're already, you've got the job more than likely
1: because you've bonded. I also talk in terms of the, um, when I was writing the book, I said at various stages, I sent drafts to a group of people younger than me to get their input, to get their take, make sure I wasn't sort of doing too much dad-splaining, as it were. And one of them is my nephew, who has just won his ward up in Basset Law with 80% of the vote, but he, so he's like a local, you know, Labour Party. He's now a council leader. But he, um, one of the comments he made, which I thought was really interesting and, and quite insightful, is that you, i.e. me, Alistair, you, your main expression of politics was working alongside Tony Blair at the very, very top level. He said when he started out in a local party, and a lot of young people will say this, because older people have got more time on their hands, you go to meetings, you rush from work, you've maybe got young kids you're looking after, whatever it might be, you haven't got as much time as they have. So you want to make better use of your time. So you suggest changes in the way that they do things, and you're met with, oh, we don't do it like that. Or you're good at social media, you're young, you do the social media, we'll do it, we'll do all this other stuff. And that sense of the number of people that I know who've gone to not just Labour but other party meetings and come away saying, well, I've got to say it wasn't much fun. You know, it was just like old people droning on about who was right or wrong in the 1970s, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, and campaigning. Campaigning can be amazingly good fun, you know, but if it's done in the old fashioned way, it's, you can get pretty ground down by it.
0: I I couldn't agree more the the more fun you can get in and also people will want to be there if it's fun so you will attract people uh, by doing it so maybe that's the 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 starting point for everything absolutely yeah. Um, yeah. I I love the fact that um you've uh, invented a new word in the book oh me too persifiliants the, the chapter where it's acquire perseverance. Can you explain to our listeners what you mean by perseverance? Because I think it's very important in in what we're talking about.
1: Well, it's as as it sounds. It's it's a a word that brings together the qualities of perseverance, perseverance and resilience, which are different things. Perseverance is about keeping going when things are tough. So I, you know, the, the point I make is you'd never say. I really must persevere with this fabulous holiday that I'm having because you don't need to persevere with it. You're enjoying it. Perseverance is about doing stuff that's tough, that's difficult, that's not necessarily always enjoyable, but you keep going. And resilience is how you deal with failure and setback and how you build back from it. And I think if you put those two qualities together, perseverance and resilience... I'm making a speech next week about where we are on Brexit. And I said, look, if we're ever going to get out of the mess we've created through this thing, we are going to need a lot of perseverance. We're going to need perseverance, but we're going to need resilience as well. Um, So, yeah, I'm glad you like that word. I love inventing words. Um, I've got another one at the moment, Brexit murder. Oh, well, explain Brexit murder to me. The Brexit murder is the Brexit murder of the political classes. The single most damaging thing that's happened to the country, but nobody talks about it. (laughs) We're (laughs) going to we're going to need perseverance to break down the Brexit murder of the political classes.
0: We're going to have to get a lexicon and just (laughs) in to explain it to everybody. No, it's brilliant. Well, I I think that humour can be a very useful tool for uh, acquiring acquiring perseverance. You know. Because humour is important in perseverance, because you have, uh, and in
1: resilience. Dark humour, yes. Dark humour, getting through bad moments with dark humour. The number of times you see people are in real mess, but they somehow make a joke of it. You know that is that's a persevering character. Well, that,
0: that's a bounce back ability for another made up word. Where it, was that? Um, was that Neil? No, Wynok? it was the. Um, big guy it was a football manager it was uh Sam know, it wasn't Sam Big Sam I'm, I can see him now I can see it is uh, oh, uh it was one yeah and everything um well right in and
1: oh uh, I've got it I've got it I've got it um Ian, Ian
0: Dowie. Dowie big fella that's right used to play up front sort of all elbows when he played <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bad smackability. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, we, you use the acronym GGOOB in your book, meaning uh, get good out of bad. We just touched upon it, but what role do you think humour can play when you're trying to get good out of bad?
1: I mean, that get good out of bad is about the setback bit. Um, well, I'll give you an example of how I, how I can get humour out of it when I'm trying to, if I to explain to people a personal example of get good out of bad, I mean, I, every single day of my life since I was 49, I mentioned the fact to somebody that I played football Diego Maradona. I've done it every single day. I'm now doing it now. This is today's, okay? <laughs> okay. Now, why did that happen? So that's quite funny, right? I say every single day, and it's true, by the way, I will mention until the day I die. I played football with Diego Maradona. Why did that happen? It happened because when the first soccer aid came out in the, you know the the United Nations thing where the England played the rest of the Denver. world etc uh 72,000 people at Old Trafford I was invited to take part. Why was I invited to take part? I'm not very good at football. I was invited to take part because they needed in the makeup for this program somebody that was a bit of a hate figure for some people in the crowd, right? And true to form, when my name was called out, there was a few cheers and there was a few boos, right? And so I was like a kind of part of the pantomime that they were creating. So, and the reason I'm totally fine with that is because I've been obsessed with football since I was a child. And as I came off the pitch... My son, Rory, said to me, he said, Dad, who's quite good at football, he said, Dad, that was embarrassing. He was so out of your depth. And I said, well, yeah, I was out of my depth. But you know what, Rory? For the rest of my life, every day, I'm going to say to somebody, do you know what? One of the best things I've ever done in my life was I played football with Diego Maradona in front of 72,000 people at at Old Trafford. And so that's getting good out of bad. Yeah. And it's using... The humor of my notoriety, mainly created by the newspapers, and which was bad. So I'm going to get, I'm definitely going to get good out of that because I'm not letting those bastards have the last word. And it was also the fact that it led to me having what was, by any standards, one of the best things that ever happened to
0: me. That is the best explanation of it I've heard. I love the fact, and uh, we will mention again that uh, you played with Diego Maradona. Because I actually, from a psychological point of view, I really liked that whole bit where you talk about it because there was a purpose in the book and and which does help people, which you talked about, Diego, visualising. Even at mm. the level, the man who'd won World Cups and won everything, exactly. he still walked out on the field to visualise and, 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 well, maybe you can explain what you thought it was. And I, I think it's that every great person has to see what's happening and imagine it in order to make it possible and true.
1: Well, I, th- I think on that occasion, I think what it was about was him knowing that this was quite a big deal. Massive crowd, going to be live on television in different parts of the world. Okay, a combination of former players, well past their prime, and people like me who were there for different reasons. So there were there were film stars, there were musicians. Robbie Williams was captain of one team, Gordon Ramsay was captain of the other. And he but he wanted to do well. And so what he wanted to do on the morning of the game, he wanted to go to the stadium, knock a ball about. And just imagine what it was going to be like, and get that feeling. And I think it's it's back to the point I made earlier about actors needing a bit of stage fright. He wanted to; he was psyching himself up to do well. And and I say in the book that I just I just love the fact that there's a guy who's won everything it's possible to win in football. He's taking part in a charity match, and he wants to get his head in the right place. But that's professional, isn't it? That's about. You know, okay. about knowing how you work
0: and going, how will I do best at this and still going through the process?
1: And it's also I think I also think from his perspective, it was about not letting other people down. They expected to see something. There there was a spectacle that was going to. And of course, he got booed every time and, and he kept going around going like that and. <laughs> All the interviews, he said the hand of God was the best goal he ever scored. And, you know, so he was playing the role as well. But in terms of his performance, and and I've got to say, you know, there were some amazing, there were four, one, two, three, four or five World Cup winners on the pitch, Okay, But Maradona was in a league of his own on our team, the rest of the world, and Gaza was in a league of his own on the England team. You could see whether you knew a little about football as I do or a lot about football as the players did, you could see that they were different class. Well, and, and that was just fabulous to behold. There was one point at which Gaza was running towards me and I was just running backwards because I thought, this, I can't do anything with What do you do with this? And, and it reminded me, Peter Reed is quite a good friend of mine. And of course, Peter Reed was played yes. in that game where the, other, the Hand of God game, where Maradona, the other goal, which is one of the greatest goals I've ever scored. And I promise you, I, with Gaza, I was like Peter Reed was with Maradona, just, what the fuck do I do? What the fuck? Do do? He's running at me, he's running at me. He's just going to go past me or through me or around me. Or, and, of course, that's exactly what he did.
0: Right. Oh, it's a, just a great picture and everything. But the other picture I've got from that is that, uh, that you described it as uh, that, It seems like you and Diego Maradona were were two pantomime dames in that. uh, 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 And you were the ugly sisters,
1: really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I've got to say at one point, my ringtone on my phone, which sadly I lost and I never got the sound back, was Clive Tilsley. who was doing the commentary for ITV. And he said, Maradona to Campbell, back to Maradona. That'll do. That, that was one of my half-dozen touches. And I think the was it um oh, I can't remember who it was. Oh, Andy Townsend was doing the co-commentary. And somebody told afterwards, told me afterwards that I was wearing number 49. I was going to proudly display the fact I was the oldest person on the pitch and I was 49 at the time. And somebody the Clive Tils there's there's Alice Campbell, is wearing number 49, proud of being almost 50 and playing at this level. <laughs> And Andy Townsend said, oh, it looks a lot older than that.
0: <laughs> it's brilliant, but that's so, a, that's what a laugh can do, is a, a laugh can bring people together. And I think it all starts with a
1: laugh.
0: It could have crushed people. <laughs> I can see it's had a devastating effect on your life and your career. And, and do you know what? I'm not sure you're ever going to play for Scotland again.
1: I think that could have been it. Yeah. That could have I'm been there. I hate to break it <laughs> to you, to
0: be honest with you. <laughs> um, I, I know we, uh, we're we're winding up with God, but I wanted to go a little bit into um, because I did, did really love the book, the the get your message across bit, which I suppose is what you're best known for, um, everywhere. And, and you talk about uh, people who are masters of it. I was interested that the one of the people you talked about being a master of. Um, I don't think either of us are a big fan of which was Donald Trump Um, uh, but we'll get into that as well but then we went you went from Trump to Zelensky which I thought was an interesting leap could you just explain uh, what you think that link is and why they're getting their message across well
1: I probably overstated it with Trump because I said he was a past master at the point I was making is that there's a he talks a lot of nonsense he tells lies but there's something truly authentic about the manner in which he communicates and he
0: only do- and i think your point in it was that he's he very clear on his messaging as well
1: yeah even when even when he does one of those long three and a half hour rambling all over the place speeches when you get to the end of it you know what he said you know what his main point yeah. was Whereas I think Zelensky is just an incredible... I mean, so Trump, you're right, we don't like him, I despise him, and I actually think he's a terrible human being, he's done terrible things. But by his own lights, communicating what he's trying to communicate about himself to the people he's most interested in connecting with, his so-called base, he does it incredibly skillfully. Zelensky, I think, uh, you know, I'm almost... like Yesterday, classic example where he's at The Hague in Holland, and he goes to the International Criminal Court to say that they've got the wrong Vladimir there. You know, it should be Vladimir Putin who's there. And now, he's already said, they've said many times, the ICC has indicted Putin. Zelensky has said many times Putin's a war criminal. He's gone to The Hague as a, in terms of, OK, there's a political element to it. But in terms of the communication, he's saying nothing new at all. But it was on our news. It, therefore, we can assume it was on the news in most developed countries in the world and some of the less developed countries. So he's what he's doing is he understands that to keep the level of support for Ukraine at the political level, particularly in America, but around the world, he's got to keep communicating the same messages again and again and again and again. And the point I make about him is that if you see him in one of his social media videos, walking around Kiev, or if you see him with a kid in a hospital, or you see him putting medals on soldiers' chests, or you see him doing an interview with Bloomberg, whatever he's doing, he's essentially communicating the same message all the time in slightly different ways. And even the fact of his clothing... He understands that that sense of a sort of half military, half nice, ordinary guy look, it it communicates something important to the moment that he's in. Yeah.
0: And he's authentic. You can feel that authenticity.
1: Absolutely. And that's the only communication that works. I mean, I I think that, you know, politicians who try to be something they're not, public aren't stupid. They suss it very, very quickly. Well. Now, I say very, very quickly, sadly, they didn't suss it quickly enough about Johnson or about Trump. And I write at the start of the book about this whole populism polarization thing. They are classic example of the con man who can persuade the public that they are, they, the elite, Johnson and Trump are on the side of the public against the elite. And that's what pop that's at the heart of populist politics. And you know they're not the only ones who've done it successfully. No,
0: but it's interesting because one of the things that I think propelled um, Johnson to power was his perceived humor.
1: Yeah, absolutely. wasn't no look, the guy is funny. I mean, he can be yeah. funny. I'll tell you a very funny story which great was um, when uh, my do- when Grace was a, a teenager and she and her friends wanted to go and see Miley Cyrus. And I thought almighty, and you know, parental guilt kicks in. So I try and I find out who the hell's going to get me some Miley Cyrus tickets. I phone this guy that I know who's well into the pop world. Turns out he's producing the whole thing. I'm sorted, right? Uh, so we get there, see, we're on the VIP list and all this bollocks, get up to this box at the O2, and then there's a very nice young girl who's serving us drinks and stuff. And then I, I see behind the wall, it's VIP box 24, and it's got a list of the people who are in it. It's basically me, Grace, Grace's friends, and Boris Johnson and his family. <laughs> so uh, Johnson was mayor at this time. Johnson comes in with his then wife and some kids. Um, this the, 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 guy, the guy says, do you, and, do you want to do a meet and greet with Miley before the show? And I'm going, no, 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 I don't want to do it. No, 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 no. And then, of course, they asked Boris Johnson, he was, yeah, oh, yeah, the kids will love that. So Grace gets to hear this, he says, Dad, God, we can't be like. Why are they going and we're not going? We can go as well. So we go down there, and um, we're waiting for Miley to arrive. <laughs> and Boris Johnson turns to me, and he says, how is it we two giants of the political landscape standing here in a dusty corridor at this vast stadium waiting to meet a woman that we'd never heard of until earlier today? <laughs> Which was quite funny, which was quite funny. She then appears. She's brought down towards us. She's introduced to Boris Johnson and says, this is Boris Johnson. He's the mayor of London. Hello, Mr. Mayor. How are you? Boris Johnson then turns to me and says, this is Alistair Campbell. He's my deputy. And which was funny to everybody who knew, right? Um, And I'm sort of... So I sort of laugh a bit and then I'm thinking, do I explain to Miley Cyrus before she goes on stage? I don't no. think so. I don't think so. So there's the, there's the outside possibility that if ever I were to pop up on an American TV screen and she saw me talking there's <laughs> that guy. He, I mean, he's the deputy mayor of London. <laughs> so,
0: Alistair, thank you so much for coming back uh, on the show. Uh, but what can I do is written in what I think is a super engaging and approachable style And hopefully it's an energizing, positive read for anyone of any generation who feels disengaged, disaffected, disempowered, or even depressed at the state of our political landscape. Uh, really, really enjoyed the book. Loved having you back with us. Alistair Campbell, thank you for coming back to the
1: Humorology. Well, thanks for having me, Paul. I think we agreed to do 15 minutes and we've ended up doing an hour. Well, that's so the way
0: go. we are, but you're you're a good sport and you're a great laugh. Thanks a lot, mate. I really appreciate All right, it.
1: Thank you. Take care. Thank thanks you. Thanks
0: a lot. The Humorology Podcast was hosted by Paul Barros, Produced by David Rose. Music by Steve Hayworth. Creative direction by Les Hughes. And additional research by Helen Sykes. Please remember to subscribe, like and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Big Sky Production.